Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the June 3rd update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, we are providing twice-weekly 15-minute webcasts and podcasts on Wednesday evenings and Friday mornings featuring the latest news, treatment updates, and clinical considerations, as well as answering your questions about COVID-19. Sign up at covid19.dkbmed.com to be sure you get the latest updates. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME and CE information. To attest for CME and CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME and CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar and previous webinars can be found under the resource tab. Today's learning objectives are discuss factors associated with super spreading events of SARS-CoV-2, describe general measures required for safe reopening of offices, and explain the role of endothelial dysfunction in severe COVID-19. And with us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, the Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thanks for your time, Dr. Allwater. Yeah, thank you, Faith. And I also want to, again, thank DKB Med, the Postgraduate Institute of Medicine, as well as the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for the support needed to bring you this program. Uh, there's also additional resources and educational activities that are available through DKB Med at the website listed here at covid19.dkbmed.com. Cases across the United States still continue. Some states are decreasing, thankfully, others increasing. There are concerns that with relaxation, we'll see more cases and, and also some of the civic unrest, which unfortunately has been occurring across our country, is also giving some people concerns that we'll see increases in the next few weeks. We'll just have to see here, but a lot of this is a natural experiment. It's making it very hard for the so-called disease modelers to help predict what will happen. I do wanna talk about this because viral transmission for me, until we have better therapies and an effective vaccine is really the key for, I think, getting ourselves and our economy and our country uh, at least in a better and more functional state. And I thought I would focus on this a bit. The reasons that uh, we talk about this are the so-called super spreader concept. This was talked about very early with the coronavirus because we saw it with the first SARS-1 and, and to some degree with the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, sort of faded away as we started to talk about asymptomatic spreaders and other things. But it's fairly clear that large gatherings, especially indoors, are one of the keys and outbreaks such as those that have occurred related to church choirs have certainly been the case. Also in people in tightly organized spaces, often the meat processing plants where temperatures are much cooler, uh, where humidity levels are fairly constant. The virus loves this as opposed to high heat and humidity. But these are events where we're now seeing a lot of activities. And what I've just mentioned are not alone, especially early on before there was rolling out of social distancing and staying at home. There were a number of venues that seemed very prone 
to where large groups of people became infected. But the key here, I believe, is that it was mainly people that were mostly indoors, tightly connected in closed spaces, much more than outdoor activities. But yet these super spreader events can be found through contact tracing, but they're still very difficult to understand. Most of you have heard about the r naught. This is the number that one person on average then goes and reinfects. The average r naught of three for novel coronavirus means that one person might infect three if you're not socially distancing. But the reality is some people, most people, in fact, probably infect none. And then a smaller number of people infect more. And so it, it's not homogeneous. And we also know through asymptomatic spread concerns that healthy people have droplet production even when they're talking. And some do it much more than others. The other attribute is that risk of transmission from studies in China as well as Japan show that there's almost a 19% chance increase compared to outdoor activities where someone with coronavirus is known to uh, be uh, present. And the other is that people that are very gregarious, have lots of social contacts, spread far more disease. And we've known this when people have been followed through contract tracing, but they had been to 10 clubs in one night, for example, or have lots of friends they visited and so on and so forth. But something else I just wanted to touch on is something you may not have heard so much, the K kappa factor, which is called the dispersion factor for infection clusters. This is a little different, and this is a value that's placed on usually viruses, but could be any infection, where the lower the value means the transmission actually comes from fewer people, hence the clustering. And we know with the some of the earlier coronaviruses, the numbers were fairly low. But to give you an example, for Spanish influenza, it was one, meaning lots of people went on and infected lots of people, whereas smaller amounts of people who were infected did so for the other coronaviruses. And we think, although this is just an estimate based on a study, but you know this is still being looked at, this novel coronavirus seems to even be worse than the others, where only about 10% of people go on and infect. 80%. And we're not exactly sure of all the factors. Is it, you know, the extroverts doing this? Is it the people that spray it instead of say it? Is it, you know, people that are not wearing masks and just sort of doing their thing? We're, we're not sure, or is it more intrinsic to the virus or the host in their sort of aerosol generation? And there's been a lot more attention now because honestly, I think our strategy now is changing. Uh, initially, of course, there was concern we didn't have any PPE or didn't have enough. And we thought this would be very similar to droplet requirements uh, that influenza have, where, you know, if you stay away three to six feet and you wear a surgical mask, you'll be fine. You're not going to probably get infection. But the reality is, as people have looked at this much more carefully than studies that were maybe done decades ago, humans produce respiratory droplets of average size that on, you know, mostly are larger. They're in the five to 10 micron size and they fall to the ground or they evaporate. But some generate those below five microns. And those are the ones that might be inhaled and actually bypass the upper airways. And these are the concerns and that silent shedders, people that don't even know they're ill, uh, current estimates are all the way up to 79% may account for most of the transmission. And in part, 
before people even become sick. And as you know, not everyone does. Six days before the onset of symptoms, people can be shedding virus. So the standard six-foot recommendation may not account for these uh, submicron particles, especially when the circulation is poor. So this is something to take in consideration and maybe keep a wider berth. And we know for uncovered coughs or sneezes, you can actually get 20 feet away. And I believe truly that universal masking is our current best weapon to really try to help limit the spread of this virus. And even surgical masks or cloth masks can help. But again, it's more from the infected person by limiting what happens with speech or unopposed coughs and sneezes, uh, but even helps others. We know from influenza studies, a surgical mask can still cut down uh, six to eight percent of uh, acquiring transmissions. And the reason why I think this is true is the case fatality rate per location and deaths. And, and what this means is that people may not be getting quite the infectious inoculum or the burden of infection. And you can see in Hong Kong and Singapore, this is considerably less than in other instances, uh, which have been much higher. We still don't know exactly why this is. People can point to other factors. But I think the frequency for adherence to mask wear is much higher in these two areas. And uh, it, it is a lesson that we should probably consider and push. And one of my keys as a physician is I really try to espouse mask wear whenever you're out in public, whenever possible, and, and not able to maintain physical distancing. Uh, as being the really the right public health and approach and, you know, respecting other people by trying to help uh, diminish transmission. Uh, CDC has finally released some of its updated guidance last month for reopening offices and churches. But it, it again, it's mixed messages. I mean, look at the ones for offices here. It's very rigorous, talking about spacing, desks apart, no common uh, seating in areas, cleaning and and using visual cues for marking and so on and so forth. Also avoiding mass transit, for example. But then if you look at the church and houses of worship, language was removed that warned against allowing choirs and singing. Also deleted information about uh, shared cups, hymnals, and worship rugs. Again, although uh, so-called fomite transmission or transmission from surfaces probably doesn't account for a large majority. It, it still sends this mixed messages, which uh, unfortunately is one of the communication issues that I think are leaving people a little bit adrift as to what, how they should proceed. And lastly, I'll just talk about herd immunity because some people have advocated, look, we're doing all this shutdown. It's really not worth it. R better to just let her rip and let everyone get infected and then everything will be fine. We won't have to wait for a vaccine. So at least for this respiratory virus, the estimates are you need at least 60% herd immunity for this to occur. And Sweden was often talked about by those that thought, look, we don't need to shut things down. We'll develop herd immunity. We'll be far ahead of everyone else. Uh, the issue there is, as of late May, they had a higher death rate than New York City, and only 7.5% or so of people had antibodies. So clearly, this is not working. I don't believe this will work as a strategy, at least outrunning other areas as well, and may experience more health consequences and death. 
And so I'll just close on the complete other end. Uh, we're not talking about acquiring infection, but for people that are so critically ill, what, what's happening, what's causing death? And a lot has been uh, focused on lung injury. We know that there is a cytokine storm and release that generates such intense inflammation, immune responses, uh, especially in the lung that you get injury there. And there are a number of strategies to deal with that. But there's also been a lot of sign that this viral illness also creates endothelial dysfunction and more clots in addition to the hypercoagulable state. Uh, but I think, I don't know if it's a surprise, but what struck me is that many people, at least in this series uh, that uh, has come out on only a preprint server at the moment, is from uh, a New York experience at Mount Sinai Hospital that suggests a lot of people who had multi-organ system problems had something like hemophagocytosis or histiocytosis, Langerhans-like uh, syndrome here, and a uh, lymphocytic syndrome. And this is just one slide from that series that uh, looked at the lung that had a lot of damage in it, a heart that had uh, fibrosis and ischemic changes, but the spleen had evidence of this HLH-like process and uh, certain stains showed heightened numbers of macrophages, so-called macrophage activation is likely at play here at well. And although they didn't fit traditional criteria for HLH, this does seem to be this sort of process. So it does give a little bit of information and insight. And it'll be interesting to see if any of the anti-inflammatory strategies uh, that are currently underway in clinical trials might have some impact on this process. So uh, Faith, I think that's all I have for today. And I, I think we have some questions. Thank you for those updates. We will now continue to the listener Q&A. Dr. Allwater, our first question. Is there a recommendation for routine anticoagulation for hospitalized COVID-19 patients? There are lots of recommendations out there uh, from Europe and other organizations, um, and as well as hospitals in the United States. My sense of it is this. Uh, some people, at least who are critically ill, often have clots present. And so some have uh, advocated for high intensity anticoagulation prophylaxis at the onset, especially for the more ill patients or even full anticoagulation. And others have targeted people that they view at higher risk, such as sickle cell patients and so on, having higher levels of anticoagulation. I don't think we have enough data. We clearly know that clots are very, uh, seem to be more common, especially in critical care illness, but how well these are evidence-based and I, I think is still, we're, we're a ways away from knowing exactly who we should target. Okay, thank you. Our next question. Based on what is known from other coronaviruses, are the effects of severe SARS-CoV-2 infection on the heart and kidneys reversible? So especially for those in critical illness, I would say yes and no. Uh, clearly, we've seen patients where there's been some improvement, and that may be due to what we call critical illness cardiomyopathy. But there's also times, as you just saw in the autopsy series, where there's a lot of fibrosis and ischemia. So that there are other patients where that does not seem, at least in just the few months' experience we have, that ejection fractions, for example, improve all the time. Same, same is true for renal disorders. We've had patients, unfortunately, who developed 
dialysis requirements that still are being discharged on them. Others seem to show recovery and no longer a need. Uh, I'm not sure I can give you uh, great percentages or risk factors for those, but it, it can be both. Okay, thank you. And this is our last learner question. Can you comment about the vaccines that have some data from clinical trials? You know, there, this is beginning to come out and it's early. It's still in the baby steps, uh, phase one, just looking for certain doses to see if they can generate immune responses. I think Moderna came under some criticism from only giving data by press release and then issuing a stock offering later in the day. There's some encouraging information there, though. They said eight patients um, generated antibody responses with neutralizing antibodies against the spike protein, but there were 30-odd other people that we don't know the data, and, uh, and honestly, we also don't know any of the characteristics of the patients. For the CanSino product, which I believe is an adenovirus, uh, concerns there were that, yeah, there were immune responses, but in a larger study, this is an adenovirus vector. And a lot of people already have antibodies against the adenovirus, so perhaps you're not going to get as good or as durable an immune response as if you had a completely uh, new immune response to a set of antigens. So uh, I think we're still very early to make any predictions uh, from this. It's encouraging. We're seeing some immune responses, but we really need to wait for the phase three studies or if we do human challenge studies with smaller numbers of patients. Unfortunately, you're going to need really thousands and thousands of patients in each vaccine trial to really gauge its efficacy. Safety, you know, obviously you get a better sense as well, but a lot of times we don't know as much until we really uh, administer the vaccine to tens of thousands of patients. Thank you, Dr. Alwater. As a reminder, to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. To all of our listeners, please be on the lookout for our next activity this Friday. We will send out an email when it's available later this week. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thank you again, Dr. Alwater. Thank you, Faith, and uh, thanks again for joining. Uh, be here next week, and I hope everyone stays safe and stays well. Thank you. Thank you.